For over 10 years, VOC Nation has taken listeners behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Our hosts are not only experts on the business, but have lived in the business. Subscribe and hear weekly podcasts from hosts like legendary pro wrestling journalist Bill After, former Impact Wrestling star Wes Briscoe, former WWE and AWA broadcaster Ken Resnick, former WWE and TNA star Shelly Martinez, former WCW star The Maestro, NWA legend The Raging Bull Manny Fernandez, and much more. VOC Nation programming is free on most major podcasting apps, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Radio.com. And video podcast and bonus content is available on Patreon for as low as $3 a month. What are you waiting for? Head to VOCNation.com and dig into the most comprehensive podcast network built for pro wrestling fans. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at VOC Nation Wrestling Network and follow us on Twitter at VOC Nation. Thank you for joining another edition of Bumps and Thumps, the talk of wrestling. I'm Brian Ferguson. We have a returning guest today, historian, knows a lot about other territories other than the AWA. I want to welcome back Mr. George Shire. George, thanks for coming back on the show today. Well, thank you, sir. You're one of the few people that call me Mr. I always said my dad was Mr. I'm just George. <laughs> well, you know, we got to respect each other. I so. understand. Thank you. No, it's fun to be back. Um, yeah. I always enjoy doing this with you, Brian. Yeah, so I, I enjoy talking with you, too. And, and we were talking before we came on, uh, all the positive feedback we've been uh, getting from around the world uh, about our discussions and your knowledge, and uh, it's been great. And uh, I always enjoy having you on as well, and I appreciate you being back on with uh, with us today. So looking forward to our discussion today, which is about the St. Louis Territory. That's why I'm wearing yeah. the NWA shirt, because it was part of the NWA uh, for right. many years. Right. So, it was. It, it was the NWA to be to be honest. Yeah. yeah. So first I want to get into kind of the background of the St. Louis uh, promotion. Uh, can you tell us a little bit how it all kind of came together? And, and Well, please realize that if, if we were to go into the complete long history of everything that happened, because this was a city that was being promoted way back in the 1920s. You know, so we're talking a hundred and some years that yeah. ago. So if we were to go way back and start doing that, um, even that's a little bit over my head as far as, yeah. I guess even where I really want to go because we'd have to have about a 20 hour show. But here's, here's the bottom line. When, uh, wrestling was in its boom or started to boom, in uh, the 30s, a little bit before World War II. And with that, I want to make a comment about World War II. We had a ton of wrestlers around the country in the 20s and 30s. Now, we're talking 100 years ago. We had a a ton of wrestlers that by the time World War II had come around, most of these guys were getting up into their 30s or 40s. Some of them 50s. And the younger guys, they were hauled off to World War II, sent off to World War II. 
And when the war ended four years later, uh, there was a whole new breed of young wrestlers in the later 40s that were there to kind of replace that old guard that had either some of them had passed away, some are obviously older, and some of them just couldn't wrestle anymore. So there was a lot of younger breeds. So for me, the St. Louis Territory, like most other territories around the country, really started to flourish and take hold and attract fans in the later 40s. Yeah. Well, I did a little background search, and I thought St. Louis was primarily – it was primarily run by uh, by Sam Mushnick. Uh But I realized there was somebody before him that was kind of his mentor from what I've read – yeah. By the name of, uh, his name was uh, Tom Pax. Can you give us a little background on, on Tom? Well, Tom Pax was the original St. Louis promoter, and there was a there was a company, or the organization at the time was called the National Wrestling Association. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Tom Pax, so I just happened to think, well, if you mention his name, I am going to, uh, I've got it written down here, His, if I can find it real quick. Okay. Well, it isn't even really important. His his real name was not Tom Pax. It's a, a long name from Greece where it was shortened. We don't need to really go into that. Okay. And it, they settled on Tom Pax because, you know, it makes it sounds better. And the same is true for Sam Muchnick, by the way. Uh, his real name was, uh, I believe it was Jesus. or uh, Jesus. Yeah. How do you say that? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. See, I always get mixed up with those. Yeah. Yeah. I think his real name was Jesus. Oh, wow. And they just realized that, you know, instead of introducing somebody uh, that way, we'll we'll call him Sam. So Sam Muchnick. You said Muchnick. I'm sorry. No, no. No, no. That's why we're here. We we, we learned this. The general pronunciation was Muchnick. Muchnick. Okay. Just just more more the way it looks. So Sam... He worked, uh, he basically, he was a, a newspaper reporter. Okay. And uh, he loved baseball, Sam Muchner. Mm-hmm. And he was a reporter in St. Louis. And he started working around Tom Pax, kind of working in a position where he'd be, you know, helping out the promoter and different things. Mm-hmm. Well, as he's doing this, he's learning. And he eventually, he lost his position at the newspaper he was at. But Sam, during this time, was a very, very respected and loved individual. He was a guy that was always considered fair. Uh, the people that he worked around and worked with in the sporting world, they, they enjoyed him, they trusted him, they loved him. So doing this, uh, working in Tom Pack's office, Sam and Tom eventually had some differences between them and, and as far as philosophy and that sort of thing. And Sam decided, you know, he was going to try and promote wrestling opposition to him. Yeah. Well, in doing this, this was one of the old old school promotional wars. You know, one of the things that modern day fans or the fans of the last 30 years think that the only time that uh, territory was or territories were ever invaded by another promotion was when Vince McMahon started his expansion to go national yeah. in 84. But Throughout history, there have always been little promotional wars, for the most part, 
every territory minded its own boundaries. I mean, they, it's like they had an invisible fence around their territory and another promoter would not come in yeah. and promote a card within that, that fence. And of course, those promoters wouldn't go to another territory either. So generally it was a gentleman's agreement and they minded their own business. But there always were uh, throughout the 40s, 50s, and 60s, even into the 70s, every once in a while, there'd be a pop-up promotion that would uh, try to run against the, the the established group. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that when it happened was, in most cases, the promoter that was trying to come into a territory, he would rally around and gather up all his friends in the business, meaning fellow wrestlers or promoters, etc., and kind of get them to, hey, come on board with me. We're going to do this. We're going to run this guy out of town or whatever it's going to be. And they generally were short-lived. Yeah. In most cases, the established promoter or promotion eventually won out. Yeah. And for various reasons. But when those rival promoters would come in, they would always bring in a lot of talent. I mean, the cards, when you look at them, they were loaded because the the promotion or the promoter that's trying to come into the territory is calling on favors from his friends, his fellow wrestlers, and bringing them in, putting together these outstanding cards. And that also forced the established promotion then to also put on these, I guess in the era you'd have called them spectaculars because yeah. they would have tons of talent and for the short term when these wars were going on, uh, really the fans were the winners. Yeah. But at, at the end of them, in most instances, it was the established promotion that eventually won out. And then things would go back to normal in a yeah. particular city or territory. Yeah. So in St. Louis, with Tom Pax, when he was promoting and Sam Muchnick started sort of running opposition, um, eventually, Sam Wichnick won out, yeah. called upon enough people and had enough clout and respect that he won out over the promotion. Now, that's a that's a capsule look at how that took place. Yeah. And eventually, Tom Pax was no longer promoting. That's okay. the short story of, a, of one that we could – and literally, I mean, we could talk for yeah. a couple hours on St. Louis. It, as I said, it goes back 100 years. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so talking about Sam, uh, you know, he what what do you think it was about him that St. Louis was just a hotbed for so many years uh, that he what what was that it factor for St. Louis that, in, in in your opinion? Well, it's my opinion, but it's also I think we could bear it out as fact. Okay, again, it goes back to Sam Muchnick being a very respected journalist, newspaper man. You know, people today, I mean, if you talk to someone today, they barely know what a newspaper is anymore because, you know, that part of our culture is leaving us. But yeah. if you go back, you know, to the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, etc., the newspaper was our main source of getting news Yeah. other than if you turned on the nightly news on, on a television set. Right. And so newspapers were very respected and Generally speaking, the, the reporters, uh, they earned a trust 
amongst their listeners or amongst their readers. And Sam Wichnick just was highly, highly regarded. I told you he loved baseball. That was one of his fortes. So he's very respected as a baseball reporter, and he had those ins. And once you get in those those little circles, you know, you have people that, hey, you need to talk to Sam Wichnick, or you, yes, talk to Sam. He's the guy. Yeah. And that's where it all came from. He just, he was highly regarded and respected. Most everybody yeah. that I have ever talked to about Sam Wichnick, and when I say most everybody, I'll, I'll share that back about, uh, boy, this would have been about 2001, 2000. Yeah, 2001, I sat down and I talked with Lou Thez Mm -hmm. for a little bit of time about different things. And um, one of the things that he said more than once while we were talking was that he had his differences with Sam Wichita. You know, when you're in a business like pro wrestling, you always have to remember there are egos butting heads all the time. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have an ego in wrestling, then you can't go into wrestling. But I think yeah. it, I think that's pretty true for any sport or entertainment venue. You yeah. got to have a pretty good ego. Yeah. And he said, you know, Sam and I, we had our differences, but he said I always respected him, and he always was fair with me. Yeah. And he took care of me, and he paid me well. And so, if you come away with that type of a compliment from a wrestler, regarding a promoter, yeah. I think that speaks pretty highly. And when you make it Lou Thez that's telling you this, mm-hmm. uh, anybody that knows anything about old school wrestling, few are more revered in this business than Lou Thez was. Right. So what made Sam credible was the fact that he was what you saw, Sam Much, And he would go to bat for you. He would, if he if he was right, he was going to stand up for it, and he would always go to bat for his guys. And he had a loyalty among uh, the wrestlers that uh, they wanted to to work with him. So, as we have that Tom Pax thing kind of fading into the the uh, sunset, yeah, you know, there was always the controversy in wrestling about who is the world champion. If you go back to the 30s and the 40s. Uh, I guess you could go all through history, but it seems like there were always territories that were billing someone mm-hmm. as the world champion. Yeah. I remember talking to one of my friends in 19, about the 1960s. He says, well, you know, wrestling, they got all these champions. Everybody's a world champion. Well, yeah, in a sense that was true, but there were only a couple or th- three officially recognized world champions at that time. And so when you get to St. Louis, you have the National Wrestling Association that recognized various guys. Uh, Wild Bill Longson was one of them, and he was the real deal. Will yeah. Longson was a tough old son of a gun that, you know, he was a guy you could call on to go in the ring, and if the guy doesn't cooperate with you in the ring, well, Bill Longson's going to make sure you're going to be in the hospital. <laughs> and in those days, that stuff was for real. Yeah. So – but as we get to the Sam Muchnick era in St. Louis, and he became the promoter, basically, that was making the money and giving to the fans, the idea came about that, you know, we have to have one world champion. Yeah. We, we have to come up with, you know, everybody's got a world champion, and the guy's a, he's a world champion, but he only wrestles in one town. Mm-hmm. And so – 
guys like Sam Muchnick. Uh, there was a promoter named Al Haft out of Ohio. There was uh, Tony Stecker from Minneapolis. Pinky George yeah. from uh, Des Moines, Iowa. And there were a couple of others. And they all got together, put together a summit, so to speak, and uh, started talking about we would organize this alliance, a National Wrestling Alliance. And in doing so, it was our goal, their goal, to have one world champion. And that is really what the NWA, the National Wrestling Alliance, was. It was never a territory. Yeah. It was never anything more. A lot of people think, well, there were three territories in the 60s, you know, the AWA, NWA, and the WWWF. Right. That, is, that isn't – it is – I mean, they were, but the NWA was just a champion. And what this conglomerate of promoters decided upon was we will give the fans one world champion. We will agree on that champion. And we will have other promoters from other territories pay dues or pay a, an annual fee, so to speak. And in doing so, they will be part of our group and they will get to have the champion come into their town, their city, or their little you know, territory, whatever cities they were running. And they would have him one or two or three times a year, whatever the schedule would permit. So it was a very logical and thought-out plan that back in that era made sense. Yeah. And each year they would have an annual meeting these for these promoters. Uh, Tony Stecker in Minneapolis, along with Wally Carbo, they stayed members of this. And Wally Carbo, by the way, was in on that first meeting as well. So they all stayed together. They would vote each year on whether or not the guy that was their champion at the time, do we want to keep him on as champion or do we want to put it on somebody else? Yeah. So when these groups of promoters, they got together, they decided they were going to have this one champion mm -hmm. and they vote each year, whether they're going to change the champion or not. Uh, to start this off, they said, well, we have to come up with one guy that uh, will be our first champion. So originally, they were going to go with an elimination match between Luthez and Orville Brown. Okay. Now, Orville, sadly, was involved in a car accident right before this yeah. match was to take place. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if they had planned on letting Orville win the match or not. But he was right. certainly at that time on par with Luthez and probably two of their best uh, wrestlers and workers. And he was involved in an accident which ended his wrestling career. Yeah. So they just put the title, the National Wrestling Alliance world title on Luthez. And with that, I'm going to correct something that is generally wrong. Okay. All through the all through the fifties and sixties and seventies, Luthez was always billed as being a six time NWA world champion. Well he officially only held the NWA Alliance champion three times. Ah. He was the association champion three times. Three times. 
Now, and that goes way back to the 1920s again. So what they did was, is they, if you look at any history site, they'll show you the lineage of the National Wrestling Alliance title. Mm-hmm. And through the years, they've just morphed the two together. Okay. And in, in, in essence, Lou became a six-time champion. Uh, which of the alliance technically he wasn't. But considering everybody accepted that as being a fact that he was and that the two were merged together, I've never had a problem with it. It's just that I was going to bring that clear for you so that listeners. I'm glad you did. I didn't know that. See, that's something interesting. I'm sure a lot of fans probably didn't know that either. So Luthez, he's our first NWA, and I'll always say Alliance champion going forward, okay? okay. He's our first Alliance champion. Um, Luthez, real deal in wrestling. He was the hooker. Luthez was the guy who garnered respect. He wanted you to respect him as a wrestler. He took the business very seriously. He was a guy that when he was out on the street, and when he, he carried the championship of the NWA for Holy, holy heck, uh, up until 56, he oh, was wow. champion for a, like, five-year run. And then he gave it up just for a short time. And when I say he gave it up, I'll talk about that later. Okay. Gave it up for just a short time, and he was champion again. So, but he was a guy that always dressed in a suit and tie when he was out in public. And when he was representing uh, the wrestling at any organization or any event, he was you know, very presentable. He thought that was important. And he was a guy that as the generation of wrestling was changing already in the fifties with television, really profiling wrestling. uh, We had a lot of characters come on board. When I say characters, I'm talking guys that weren't really wrestlers, Yeah, but they were colorful personalities. And, you know, the, the main one that comes to mind is Gorgeous George. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. But George, George was a great, I, I won't say he was a great wrestler. He was a good wrestler. But he was bland. He wasn't making any money. He wasn't really big. And he was uh, wrestling on middle of the card, not making any money. And he was the innovator. He come up with the idea that, you know, hey, we got to give these people something different. So he was the one, the very first one that, you know, went and got his hair permed. Uh, Now, when you go back to the 40s, the late 40s, early 50s, and you think of a man getting a perm, I mean, that just didn't happen. Yeah. Happened in the 70s when, you know, all guys were getting perms in the 70s. Yeah. I think I did, too, when I had hair. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, here's gorgeous George, who then gets his hair bleached blonde and it was always more white than blonde yeah and he's got these longer curls and this blonde hair and he comes up with the, the robe and the, the arrogance the cockiness uh <laughs> appearing in those days to be somewhat feminine yeah. and that was a gimmick that got old but that didn't set well with luthes he he didn't like that gimmick wrestling so usually Lou didn't like to be matched against those type of wrestlers. Yeah. And if he had been or was, he basically wasn't going to put them over. 
Yeah. And that was the way the business was run. So Lou had some clout. Yeah. He, Lou drew well. And as champion, that's what Sam Muchnick went with and the other promoters of the alliance for uh, that first five or six years. Okay. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a lot of guys that went through St. Louis. Uh, Harley Race, Ken Patera, Ric Flair, uh, the who's who in the really the 60s, 70s, and even in the early 80s. Uh, but I've also been, uh, when I read, and I want to clarify this with you, is that Sam <laughs> and his St. Louis club, wrestling club, uh, no tag team championship. Is that, is that right? That is officially right. The, the alliance never ever endorsed or had official National Wrestling Alliance World Tag Team Champions. Now, when you look at wrestling magazines and territory fan club bulletins and programs of the 50s and 60s and 70s, Mm -hmm. you will find many territories that advertised having NWA World Tag Team Champions. Right. What that was, Brian, is a promoter, in a ter- let's just use uh, Florida, for example. Okay. Florida had NWA Tag Team Champions, but that was just their version of the Tag Team Championship. They were never officially endorsed by Sam Muchnick and the so-called Alliance. Okay. But because that promoter or that territory was a, a member of the Alliance, mm-hmm. they were able to have their World Tag Team Champions. But the NWA never had one team. Yeah. And that's what's confusing. You know, if you do, if you want to do a history of the WWF title or the AWA tag team title, or many others too, but especially those two, it's yeah. very easy to do because you can trace it. But with the NWA world title, at the same time, it, at, in one one time period, you could have three or four different teams in different parts of the country yeah. uh, being billed as NWA champions. Why? And they just didn't have. Why do you think they did that? I mean, because tag team wrestling was it not? I don't know. Uh, accepted part of the promotion as a full time basis. I mean, they had their six man and all that, but. Yeah. Uh, Tag team wrestling was extremely popular, and a lot of territories highlighted tag team wrestling over singles wrestling as far as main events and different things for a good part of their time in, in promoting. Okay. In St. Louis, again, you have Sam Muchnick, who is, for practical purposes, a purist. He always believed that the singles match was the one that was the main event on a card, and it had to be a contest between two guys two wrestlers that the fans wanted to see. And when it was the world champion, which St. Louis was the headquarters, of course, he always had that NWA title match on top. He would never put a tag team over it as being the spotlight uh, match to come to. So he was very serious about that. And, he just, and, and again, with Luthez, he was a guy that never wanted to have any billing around. And because, you know, it's weird because Lou was respected and, and he always did what promoters asked, but he also could 
do what he wanted. Yeah. Um, and they knew they could count on Lou. Yeah. He could get what he wanted. Yeah. And he did that. So Sam just wasn't going to have National Wrestling Alliance tag team champions. And because the, you know, here's another way to look at it. Because their singles champion, whoever it was at any particular time, was going around the country, you know, one night he'd be in Florida, one night he'd be in, the next night he's in Texas, then he might be in California, then he might be up in Calgary, Canada, well, then he might be down in Mexico. I mean, they did not have a tag team that could do that type of traveling. This also, let's just talk about this, this presented a problem as time went on for that NWA world champion. Because as we had 25 territories, there were times when it virtually became impossible for the whoever was the NWA champion at the time to endure the schedule that he was being put through on a yearly basis. And if you look at NWA title history, with but a few exceptions, and there are explanations for those exceptions that, again, we could go into and it'd be a another half hour of a show, but generally speaking, the NWA champion, when they were crowned, it was with the idea that they would be champion for at least a year, usually two to three. That was okay. what the consensus was. Yeah. So when we get into uh, towards the time when when Buddy Rogers became champion. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to go back just a step farther. Sure. In St. Louis, Dick Hutton took the title from Lou Thetz. Lou had went to Sam and said, I need some time off. I want to give up the belt for a while. Um, we need to come up with somebody. However, I'm going to be able, I want to choose who I'm going to drop it to. And that was important for Lou again because how he respected the business, how he saw the business should, the champion should be represented. Yeah. Well, he chose Dick Hutton. Dick Hutton was an extremely gifted wrestler. He was an amateur. He and Vern Gagne had hooked up in the Olympics. Okay. And Hutton was, was, he again was another one. I always refer to him as that real deal. Amateur turned professional. And that was the guy. By all facts, that made a good choice when Lou said, I want to drop it to, to Dick Hutt. Well, the only problem was is that Dick Hutton was a logical choice, but he didn't draw. Yeah. His personality was not conducive to him drawing fans. Mm -hmm. He was a bland, a bland personality. He had the skills, but he couldn't get the people to come in. And that was the problem the NWA was having for a, the year or so that that Dick held the title. And he'd go into a town and the world champions come into town and the promoters weren't drawing. Yeah. So, you know, when the champ came to town in those days, it only happened once or twice, maybe three times a year. That was a huge deal in a town Yeah. when the world champion was coming because he wasn't there every week. Right. He wasn't on TV every week. But Dick Hutton wasn't doing the job. So that was one of those short times where they said, okay, the Alliance got together when they're in their annual meeting and they said, we got to come up with a, we got to come up with a guy that uh, is going to take the title. Then Pat O'Connor came. 
Okay. And uh, Pat O'Connor, again, another legit wrestler. Yeah. That's what the NWA always wanted. Yeah. Very, he was charismatic. He was very likable. He drew well. He had the title for a couple of years. And he dropped it to Buddy Rogers, the nature boy. The original that, nature boy. The original nature boy. That's right. Now that's when things started to get a little bit hairy because there were some outside forces. And the Alliance didn't have the power over Rogers that they had over the other wrestlers. And, again, this is something we could go into very deeply. Yeah. But Rogers was more controlled by the East Coast promoters. Yeah. And it became a difficult story. So a couple years into the Rogers run, even though Rogers drew well, it was difficult to get him. And that was the whole idea of the champion for the NWA. He agreed to work specifically for us. He's at our disposal. We'll tell him where to go every night of the week. Yeah. So when that became difficult with Rogers, they uh, sandwiched it, went back and pulled out Luthez, asked Thez. And Thez at that point in time in 1963 was – for wrestler standards, was an older man because yeah. he'd been wrestling since the 20s. Yeah. So Lou did it pretty much as a favor, yeah. and Lou didn't like Buddy Rogers. We could talk on a half-hour show about that. <laughs> but yeah. Buddy didn't like Lou Thez. Yeah. So the idea was is that Buddy wasn't going to lose to Lou. Well, Lou Thez just made it very simple, and this is fact guys. Lou went to Buddy in the locker room and he told him, he said, Buddy, it's simple. When we go out there tonight, we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way. But I'm walking out with the belt. And Buddy had no choice. Buddy could not wrestle with Lou. And if Lou didn't want to lose, he wasn't going to lose. So it was determined that Lou was going to win by the Alliance, and he took the title from Buddy. So Lou had it then for three years. Again, it was time for him. He was at the twilight of his career. He wanted to slow down. He gave it to uh, Gene Kanista, and that's how that went. So you got these three-year intervals. And if you follow it from Gene Kanista on out, uh, up until we get to Terry Funk in the 70s, if you look at it, it was generally about two to three years, with the exception of the Dory Funk Jr. to Harley Race match the very first time. Yes. And there's a story behind that. So anytime you're involved in wrestling, there's some backstage stuff that took place yeah. that, uh, you know, you, you never yeah. really heard about because it they didn't want you to know it. Yeah. Uh, and Sam was the – president of the NWA for many years and you know he was the the president and then he was the you know promoter for St. Louis so he kind of maybe I'm wrong he kind of had an upper edge okay I'm the president so you know I can funnel I know they funnel guys all over but the Mecca was St. Louis I mean well St. Louis was St. Louis was Sam's home. Yeah. And for the most part, Sam would get, you know, there's, you, you got to understand too that because Sam was ba- 
in reality controlling the champion, whoever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam got a percentage of, uh, of the champion's fee as he went around the country. Yeah. So Sam was getting, but that was all agreed on by the Alliance promoters. Yeah. And Sam was the, the person that was doing the scheduling and taking care of the business and providing all these other territories with the champion and the schedule. And, uh, you know, the other thing I would say about that schedule, when we talk about that three-year, two-year term that the champion would run around the country, mm-hmm. in most cases, Brian, it was the champion himself that would go to Sam, go to the Alliance, and say, guys, I want to take, I want the belt taken off. I, I, I got to give it up. I'm gone. I'm gone 367 days a year, and there's only 365 in the year. <clears throat> and, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I need to have some time off. I, I, and, and the travel, I mean, you think about it, it wasn't anything. And this is in the day when we didn't have a lot of air travel and jet travel, that sort of thing. But the travel was, you know, the guy just got to go to a match, defend his title, get on an airplane, go to the next city the next night, then get on an airplane, go to the next city. And that's what the, and he had a very lonely life. He, the NWA champion during any tenor that they had, they generally didn't have the camaraderie with any of the, the wrestlers in the locker rooms and the different uh, towns they wrestled in because they weren't one of the boys. They were the, the guy coming in just for tonight to defend the title. Then he's gone. Yeah. And, and most of the guys, I mean, they wanted, they liked the championship, but they would tell you that for their personal lives and their probably overall just uh, health-wise, it wasn't a healthy thing. And yeah. you get to two or three years, and they're saying, "Okay, I want it. I want it taken off of me. Come up with somebody to take it off." And that's what would happen. They'd have these annual meetings, and again, they'd talk about, "Well, which you know." And the promoters all had their ideas too in yeah. these meetings. You know, we'd like to have so and so have a title run, or I want my guy to have a title run. You know, this guy, that guy. But it always came down to a consensus, to a vote. And it was usually uh, decided upon who was going to be the heir apparent to whoever was the current champion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I read some stuff. Uh, Tim Hornbreaker. Hornbreaker is an awesome, he, awesome historian. Yeah, he wrote a Very book. well respected. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a book on uh, the NWA. Yep. A couple of them, actually. Death of actually, Character. that. That the NWA book you're referring to is what I consider for the NWA to be the Bible. And yeah. Tim did an excellent job of researching it. Yeah. The untold story of the NWA. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I finished it. I read it a few months back. Great, great read. If you're a wrestling fan, it's a great read. I mean, sometimes, you know, it's, it's long, but it's, it's good. Uh, in my opinion. I mean, and I'm no, not it, much it, of a reader and I, well, and I, I couldn't put it down. Yeah. A lot of wrestling fans, this isn't, this isn't a cut on wrestling fans, but a lot of wrestling fans don't like to read mm-hmm. long dissertations and historical yeah. facts. I think many of them would prefer maybe to listen to them or have a story told. But uh, going back and reading a book like Hornbaker, uh, The Untold Story of the NWA or the National Wrestling Alliance, mm-hmm. Um, it's not something you can sit down and read in a few minutes. It's something no. that you're going to take some time with yep. and you're going to have to go back and forth and look at it. And 
but yeah, good book. Yeah, it's very good book. Uh, talks a lot about Sam and and the and the NWA, how they all formed. The uh, it's a great read. Um, yeah. I just I, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> and so getting back to St. Louis, you know, we talked about the champions going through there, Sam. You know, Sam had a program at the Chase. Can you talk about the Chase a little bit and what that relationship with the NWA and that facility or motel really is what it was? Yeah, it was the Chase Hotel. There, um, I always get the name of the room, the 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 banquet type room that they held the wrestling in. Um, I'm not even going to attempt to say it. It's the, <laughs> it starts with a K. And I, I read it, and I, I, I can't pronounce it. And I was in the room a few times. Yeah. Uh, but in the Chase Hotel, they would – Sam did this very differently because this banquet room, they would actually have the banquet tables set up. The people that were there were having this elite dinner. They would come in, and the ladies in their evening gowns and the, the men in their suits and tuxes. It was very formal. They would sit around the tables like any big banquet room, mm-hmm. but in one corner of the room, they would have the wrestling ring set up, and they would hold the TV wrestling. And it was done in front of an audience of high-class people. This wasn't your normal, in those days, not your normal wrestling fan. Yeah. But this was something in St. Louis that caught on. Yeah. I wish I could pronounce the name of the room, but other rest St. Louis fans will know yeah. what I'm talking about. So they would, they would tape wrestling at the chase and it, it was a studio setting, but different from any other studio setting. Because when you looked at other TV productions of wrestling, you had the bleachers around two corners of the ring and, and yeah. three rows of fans sitting on them. Yeah. And of course the fans were there in their shorts and their tank tops and you know whatever. There was just they were wrestling fans. Yeah. But in this room at the Chase Hotel, it was classed. And that was that also helped with a guy like Lou Fess because he was he was appearing before people that were upper echelon, so to speak. Very yeah. popular program. And I, I was there, I had the opportunity to be there twice oh, wow. for television tapings. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very enjoyable. Yeah, it was a a program on St. Louis television for 24 years. Live from the chase. Live from the chase. And for a program to last that long, uh, in that era even, uh, says a lot, especially for wrestling. I mean, I'm not saying wrestling programs were bad, but I'm saying on the same channel – uh, for 24 years, yeah, it says a lot about uh, the quality of the of the program. Well, so. and and St. Louis as a promotion, the city had a not only the longevity with the TV station, which again is important because the fans always knew where they could turn to catch wrestling. Yeah, and with Sam at the helm, being the respected person he was. Um, they had the Keel Auditorium, yes. which was a, I got to tell you something. 
in the days when I was able to go around to some of these territories, I have really fond memories of the Keel Auditorium. It was a, as classic a, a, an arena for wrestling presentation that you could find. Okay. It was a, um, you looked outside and it was an old brick building, a big square, rectangular, however yeah. it was, building in a city block. But inside it was like typical arenas or auditoriums were in that day where you had the the chairs, the bleachers around the, the stands around the, the ring in the middle of the arena. Yeah. And uh, very, very fun place to visit. And the fans were always very cordial. I, I was, well, I was at St. Louis Keel Auditorium probably about a half a dozen times. Yeah. And I never thought I saw an unruly fan there. Wow, Which that's pretty I can good tell to you, say. I can tell you in some arenas I was yeah. in, even my hometown of the Twin Cities, yeah. there were times when there's a fight breaking out up in the bleachers. Yeah. You know, but St. Louis, I don't know. It, it just, um, it was a fun city for, yeah. for wrestling. Yeah. And Sam would put on the, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Sam's promoting of the, yeah. the characters. Sam also believed. I told my wife today I was going to mention this. All right. The uh, Sam had the be- the belief that the world champion was the elite of the business, and for that reason, on his St. Louis cards, you could never have a king or a lord or a baron. Uh oh. So. <laughs> He he believed that, and this is a funny story, I, and I shared this on one of our AWA shows, Baron Von Raschke, when he became Baron Von Raschke in 1967, everywhere he wrestled around the country, and Baron traveled, yeah. he, he was all over, as this, putting over this German gimmick of his. And everywhere he went, he was Baron Von Raschke. Yeah. Well, when he went to St. Louis, Sam told him, I can't have a baron because a baron is royalty, and that would appear that it's better than the champion. And he said, so you're Von Rash. And when I originally had Baron tell me this story back in 99, mm-hmm. Baron told the story, and he goes, so I go into St. Louis, and I'm demoted. <laughs> He's not a baron. But if you look at any St. Louis program, Von Raschke, and he was pushed. Sam used him a lot. He was yeah. he, he was over huge as a uh, German heel in yeah. St. Louis, yeah. never as fair. And he would not uh, bill. If I mean, if Jerry Lawler came in, he wasn't Jerry the King. He was Jerry, Jerry Lawler. Lawler. And the same would go. Lord Alfred Hayes, he had trouble too because didn't want to be billed as a lord. Sam yeah. didn't like that. Yeah. That, that, to his credit, you know, he had a standard, and that's what he fed his fans, and the fans accepted it. Well, it's amazing, too, that I think versus today's wrestlers, I think more the wrestlers respected, I shouldn't say respected, uh, accepted 
what the promoter wanted. If it wasn't too outlandish, okay, I'm a, you're not Baron Von Rash because I consider the champion to be above everybody, so you're Von Rash. I don't know nowadays if somebody is like, you know, we got all these kings on WWE example, you know, you got, and if they say, well, we're going to change it. I don't know if you're up to the, there, that would be acceptable, but different time, different era, different things. Um, well, the, the business, I mean, you know, again, whenever we want to sit down and talk about then and now, Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a true apples to oranges yeah. analogy. Yeah, they're 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 not the same. They're not even close to the same. But each has their own merits and their own fans and their own following. And and uh, you know, a dinosaur like me, I'm not interested in the current product. But the current product, you know, they look at the old product and they go, those guys, you know, they don't know this for fact because they weren't there. Yeah, but they, you know, they were old. They were slow. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. And um, it, it's just the way it is. Yeah. No, I, I must be a dinosaur too because, um, I mean, I watch some of it just kind of keep up a little bit, but I don't, I don't watch it like I did as a kid. I don't watch it. Yeah. My wife thinks I watch it a lot, but I don't watch it nearly as much as I used to. Well, I don't watch it at all. In fact, I just had uh, Mick telling me yesterday that I should give AEW a try. Uh, and I, I have I have given AEW a try a couple of times previous, mm-hmm. not recently. Yeah. I it, But I, I can get to about... I don't know, four or five minutes of it if I last that long. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I just need these five minutes back in my life. I'm never going to get them. I'm not going to waste an hour on it. So, yeah. but I, it doesn't mean it's bad, Brian. It, yeah. It's just, it's not yeah. my, my cup of key. Yeah. Let's talk about St. Louis as a promotion and how Sam worked it as far as bringing guys in. You must have been reading my mind because that's what I was going to talk to you about next. Go ahead. Well, I'm clairvoyant too. <laughs> the, uh, St. Louis, because it wasn't a territory, it was a city that Sam promoted. Sam didn't promote any other city, any other town. His only other obligation, other than promoting matches, running cards in St. Louis, usually on a monthly basis, and I will point out that he usually ran from August through June, they took the summer off. There was always about four or five, six weeks in between or eight, yeah. six, seven, eight weeks before the next card in August. Okay. Uh, but he did not have the, the resources that a lot of territories did where they had a lot of wrestlers that were, for lack of a better word, and a handshake under contract with them to right. work the territory for a specified amount of time. Sam only had St. Louis, and so – he would always call upon his resources and his fellow wrestlers that he could count on, yeah. and he would bring them in. And so when you look at just take the the 50s going into the 60s, mm-hmm. it was a the, the St. Louis cards, the lineups are always fun to look at because no two cards in a row ever have all of the same wrestlers on them. They might okay. have a couple of the same main eventers, yeah. but the undercards are always interesting because he would bring in 
couple of wrestlers from the central states region, you know, Kansas City and mm-hmm. Iowa, etc. He would bring in maybe a couple guys from Texas or bring in someone, two guys from Florida, someone from California. Even some of the guys from out east, he'd bring them in for a card. And we had very interesting matchups. And so the cards were always fun to look at. And the guys would come in and they didn't have to do anything more than come in and get a payday from Sam. He brought in AWA guys. Yeah. When we got into the later 60s, into the 70s, uh, AWA guys would go into St. Louis. Lanza, Duncombe, Bachwinkle, Vern Gagne, Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel. Uh, there were other AWA wrestlers that would go in for that one night. Yeah. They ran, uh, St. Louis ran uh, Saturday nights. Friday nights was always Houston. Saturday nights, I'm pretty sure. And the guys could go into town, get paid, and go home. Yeah. But the uh, there was a loyalty to Sam. If Sam called up a wrestler and said, hey, you know, you want to come in? I got a date open. I'll be there, Sam. Yeah. And and that says something in itself. So his his card rosters are very – I love looking at them. Yeah, because you see a lot, and you see a lot of different matchups too. Mm. Now Sam also had another quirk, if you want to call it that. Okay, he wasn't, you know, because he wasn't heavy into the gimmicks in St. Louis, the Mm -hmm. gimmick wrestler per se. He wasn't really fond of masked men. However, over the course of the St. Louis promotion, you can look at it and you see. Many wrestlers that did appear there under a mask, but they were never given the long-term push that other territories would give an individual under a mask. And Sam would have them for a couple, three, four months maybe, and then it would come time that either the wrestler was going to be unmasked or he was going to just be gone. Yeah. He had a, the strange quirk I was talking about is that he had a few times when he would build a masked man up for the short term to get a title shot with the world champion. Well, here's where the quirk comes in. <laughs> in the AWA, for instance, if uh, in 1961, when uh, 1962, when Mr. M masked beat Vern Gagne who was the champion at the time of the AWA, Mr. M was the champion with a mask. We still don't know who this dude is, according to the <laughs> Okay, we got this guy with a mask holding the title. Well, Sam's quirk was, is that if you're a masked man and you're going to get a title shot, win or lose that night, your mask is coming off. <laughs> so if you become the champion, which no mass man ever did become the champion. I mean, obviously that's behind the scenes. It wasn't going to happen. Right. But the, to the fans, if the mass man won the title, he had to reveal his identity because the NWA champion had to be known. And that was his quirk. So there was, there was an instance uh, in 1967 with a few months that went by. We had, they had a masked wrestler named uh, under a mask named Dr. Scarlet. Dr. Scarlet had a, a 
lavender purplish mask on, wore a purplish type cape, and he had a tunic, I believe was also kind of lavender. Nobody knew who Dr. Scarlet was, but he was a big dude. <clears throat> you know, appeared to be 250, 60, 70 pounds and uh, over six foot. And he works his way up, you know, beating a couple of the top contenders in St. Louis. And he gets his title match with Gene Kaniski, who was the champ at the time. And, of course, that night, Dr. Scarlett is revealed. And it turned out to be Cowboy Bill Watts. Oh, wow. So, from there on, Bill Watts wrestled a few more cards in St. Louis as Bill Watts. But he was there. As Doctor Scarlet, yeah. And the the only irony that's cool about that, and nobody would have known this at the time because the territories we didn't know what went on next door, right? But during this time that he was working St. Louis, which is the only place that Doctor Scarlet wrestled in St. Louis, that's the only place he wore this mask. At the same time, he was working full time for Vern Gagne in the AWA as Bill Watts. So he'd fly into St. Louis on a Saturday night wrestle his match, come back home. Wow. So it was kind of fun. And and Sam did that with other masked wrestlers too. Dr. Bill Miller, again, who was Mr. M back in the AWA days, yeah. he became the Crimson Knight in, in uh, St. Louis. Wow. And he worked his way up to a title match, and he was revealed as Big Bill Miller. Wow. Interesting. So that was one of those little quirks. Sam did not want any, any gimmicks for the champion. Have you ever met, did you ever meet Sam in person? I met Sam in 1971, but I could never tell you that we knew each other. Okay. I met him. I was, I was in St. Louis that particular time for the uh, Wrestling Fans International Association, WFIA fan convention. And it was hosted that year in St. Louis. So Sam had been the promoter that coordinated with the WFIA for their card and everything that night. Okay. I had met him and, but it was a casual, you know, nice to meet you, Sam, and that sort of thing. But he didn't know me from the guy next door. Okay. I did have a good chance though at that same time to meet um, a guy by the name of Larry Madison. And Larry Madison, who was Sam's right-hand man, if you look at St. Louis history, Larry groomed himself and learned all his his uh, craft from Sam and went on to do some promoting himself. He was also the uh, per, uh, longtime announcer for St. Louis. Oh, okay. After uh, when I was there in '71, the uh, wrestling announcers were was a guy named George Abel, mm-hmm. and I don't know a lot about George Abel, but the other guy that was the announcer with him was Mickey Gargiola. And if you're a baseball fan, you obviously know the name uh, Joe Gargiola. Yeah. And Mickey was George's brother. Uh-huh. And, of course, very probably friends with uh, Sam Wichnick. Those were the two announcers, but Larry Madison was there, and Larry and I became friends. Larry was another guy that uh, he's passed away, sadly, now a, couple, a year or so back. Um, after suffering for more years than he should have, but uh, just a sweetheart of a, of a guy. And he, um, 
went on after Sam got out of the promotion business and the St. Louis Wrestling Club was being promoted by, now owned at that point, by Vern Gagne, Bob Geigel, Harley Race, Pat O'Connor, the four guys that sort of combined their money and bought it up. Larry Matisic for a while went out on his own. Again, one of those promotional wars, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And he was running against uh, – Vern was more of a silent partner in the whole situation. Mm-hmm. Geigel, O'Connor, and Race were from Central States who owned that territory, and they just took over St. Louis. But uh, Larry started promoting on his own, created his own wrestling organization, and uh, got some TV time in the channel there. I think he ran uh, – four or five cards. And again, it was, they were cards that were loaded with talent. And this was in the eighties, 83, 84 ish range. Yeah. And uh, he had his own world champion. He gave legitimacy to his champion in St. Louis for those who care. There was a tournament match uh, down in Texas between uh, Adrian Adonis and Tully Blanchard. Ah. And the winner of the referee of the match was Luthez. And the winner of the match would be crowned Larry Matisic's promotions world champion and presented with the Luthez belt, the original alliance belt. That was, that was the championship belt. So Adrian Adonis, believe it or not, when he was before he went in the goofy gimmick with the Adorable. with the with the East Coast Circus, because uh, he was a there was a talent. Yeah, in his in his uh, Adonis days before yeah. he became adorable. Yeah, he was a heck of a worker. Yeah, and uh, he got the Luthez belt for that show. Wow, time. that is amazing. When Sam left the promotion, um, you know, like you had mentioned earlier. Brian, there were other NWA presidents. Fritz von Erich was the president for a time mm-hmm. uh, under his real name of Jack Adkison has on record as the cha- the uh, Alliance president. Um, Bob Geigel was the Alliance president for a while. And Sam, though, after the other guys took over and Sam stepped down in 82, St. Louis was never the same again. And then we're just a year out, a year or so out, and the the invasion starts and the whole business is changing and, you know, the rest is history. So St. Louis, when when uh, Sam had his last card in St. Louis, there were literally a who's who of wrestlers of his generation that were still with us at the time that were on hand to celebrate with him on that card. And uh, it was truly an end of an era when yeah. St. Louis was gone. Yeah. And then McMahon came in, and he was running after Madison didn't succeed, unfortunately. Uh, McMahon was in there and doing the same thing that he was doing in the other territories. He bought up the TV time. He bought up the arenas so that they couldn't promote. And, you know, by that time, Harley Race had moved over to the WWF. Yeah. And uh, – You know, it was St. Louis wrestling, but it was under the WWF uh, flag at that time. Yeah. 
I want to talk to you about that sometime as well, the expansion, and we can get into all that on another program. But I want to tell you, we're going to probably have to wrap her up. I really appreciate you coming on today and talking about St. Louis. It's been a pleasure. I've grown to, you know, really respect you. I, you know, it's funny. I feel like I know you, but we've never met in person. Well, we'll we will. Yeah, we will. We will. We will. Someday. We will. Someday. Where do you live? Where do you live? You're in. I'm here. You tell uh, me all the time. You're in Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but my parents live in Wisconsin. But we will. I, that's sometime. right. Yeah. That's right. So sometime when you're visiting yep. your parents, we're going to have to somehow. Yeah. We will. I'm not doing any traveling to Missouri in the okay. future. Don't blame you. All right. Well, Mr. George Shire, sir, thank you for coming out or coming on today. I really appreciate it. And uh, I want to give one shout out real quick to Mr. Matt Walsh, who contributed to the podcast on our Anchor FM. If you'd like to do that, please go to Anchor FM and look for Brian Ferguson, and you can do that. George, sir, thank you very much. I want to do My this again. My pleasure. I want to do My honor. Soon. Thank you, Brian. You always do a great job. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And everybody, enjoy the podcast. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, this is a Total Package, Lex Luger. You're listening to the VOC Nation. Don't miss out. Hey, guys, before we get started, I just wanted to read this commercial because it's an agreement that we made with a really great podcast, and I want to tell you guys all about it. Pro Wrestling Interviews, it features guests who are hot indie stars as well as the greats of the ring. Each week, you can join the amazing Velvet as well as Dr. John as they host this jam-packed hour of interviews, pro wrestling news, and entertaining guests. It's an hour you don't want to miss. Trust me, you don't want to miss it. Every Sunday, 9 p.m. Eastern, just go to ProWrestlingInterviews.com, and it'll take you to their Facebook page where you can get the custom podcast link for that week. Don't miss a second of Pro Wrestling Interviews. That's Sunday nights, 9 Eastern, ProWrestlingInterviews.com. The worldwide leader in entertainment. This is the VOC Nation Radio Network. Check out In The Room. Every Tuesday night at 9. Listen in. Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Brady Hicks, former WCW star Stro Maestro, Cassie Fitz, Matt Grimm. And you and Ray are there too, right Ray? We sure are, and we've got great guests. Like Lex Luger, AJ Styles, Taku, and more. It's a heck of a party. Plus, I didn't get thrown off the uh, building. And then uh, I didn't get pregnant either. Sometimes I think it gets so ridiculous. We were getting into, like, snuff film territory there. In the room. 9 p.m. Eastern on VOC Nation. Yo, this is Jerry Stags of the Nasty Boys. Yeah, Brian Knobs here. You get ready to get nasty. Well, listen to the VOC Nation, baby. VOC Nation is one of the longest-running wrestling podcast networks. Having started way back in 2010, VOC Nation provides daily streaming shows where fans have the ability to interact with their hosts and guests via phone calls, emails, and Twitter. VOC Nation hosts include former backstage interviewer from both AWA and WWE, Ken Resnick, former WCW performer The Maestro, former Impact performer Wes Crisco, Pro Wrestling Illustrated contributor Brady Hicks, and former Philadelphia radio personality Bruce Works. Archive-free content includes past interviews with huge names like Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Kurt Angle, Jimmy Hart, Ricky Steamboat, Ding, Mick Foley, Joey Styles, Howard Finkel, and so many more. Listen live at VOCNation.com and subscribe to all the podcasts by searching VOC Nation Radio Network on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to follow these guys on Twitter at VOC Nation. 
Phil After has been in the pro wrestling business for over 50 years. Hey, talking here with uh, Arn Anderson. Arn, first of all, your height and weight. 6'1", 255. And now subscribers to VOC Nation Premium get exclusive access to Bill After's archived audio footage. And uh, where's your hometown? Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay, and uh, give us something about your back. First of all, your relationship to Ole Anderson. Ole is my Subscription to VOC Nation Premium starts at just $3 a month and includes commercial-free audio and video versions of our top podcasts. Okay, we're speaking here with uh, the manager of the World Heavyweight Tag Team Champions, Tarzan Tyler and Luke Graham, and he's, uh, he's sort of glowing tonight about a new prospect we haven't heard of yet. And for just $9 a month, Aptor's archives are all yours. Uh, would you tell us who this new prospect well, is? Well, I'll tell you, Bill, I've searched the world, and I finally <laughs> found a true world champion. I finally found... What's your opinion of uh, Ivan Koloff winning the title from Bruno San Martino? Well, I think... Uh, I don't know what to say, but I, well, I want to say one thing. Uh, Bruno was an early champion. Hear exclusive interviews with the greatest performers of all time. This is after, and once again, we're speaking here with... Bruno San Martino. Bruno, first of all, how did you and Bruiser lose that title to the Valiants? Well, actually, it, it was a, a, a very unusual loss, if you want to call it a loss. Did didn't have anything to do? Well, yes, but the whole thing is this, that the rules, as I always understood them, was that the title could only be lost by pin or, or submission, which is the same rules as uh, my title, the World War Wrestling Federation. That night, uh, it was... To sign up, it's very simple. Head to premium.vocnation.com or go to patreon.com slash vocnation. VOC Nation takes you behind the scenes of the greatest moments in pro wrestling history. Each and every Thursday night, check it out. WCW star Stro Maestro takes you on a journey. It's WCW Retro. Talking old school match of the week. Talking dream matches. Taking your calls and looking back on an incredible career of acting, entertaining, and wrestling. Check it out. VOCNation.com. WCW Retro. Be sure to call in Thursday nights, 9 Eastern, on the VOC Nation Radio Network. This is Matt Hardy, and you are listening to the VOC Nation.